1: Welcome everybody, Steve with Fidelity coming back with Aaron again from well, Tradivox and other other projects. He may if he wants to talk about those, he can as always. But it you we've had him on twice already, I think. Maybe once, I don't know. No, twice. Once on this and once on Benedictus. So we're getting back to his bread and butter, his baby, TradiVox. which, if you guys don't have it, I would recommend everyone going to either the web- website, which will be in the show notes. Or go to the Vox subscription where you can get it, and they'll send you one, I think once a month or anything. And because they have currently, and you see it over my shoulder here, over there, eight volumes, catechisms, which we dare we everyone knows we need more of to understand the faith. And there's more than one catechism, which is what Aaron's been pulling out for the last two th- years, three years, four years. So we're talking about Volume Three, but Aaron, how you doing? And uh, welcome back! And yeah, tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing the last uh, since we last talked.
0: Sure thing. Well, appreciate being back, Steve. It's always good to chat with you. Um, golly, the box Project—it's—it's a—it's uh, it's continuing, you know, full bore. We're—we're we're in, as you said, eight volumes in print currently, uh, but we have. Let's see, we just submitted uh, the manuscripts for for fourteen. And listeners may already be aware this is so the, the general project is to kind of reclaim, remaster uh, just the best of the best catechisms uh, classically in English that are that are uh, in print. So a lot of this involves archival research, microfilm, et cetera, um, and then just cleaning and repolishing uh, graphics. In some cases, some of the catechisms have, uh, of course, gorgeous uh, old woodcuts or or engravings and so on and then um and then republishing as you mentioned so there'll be between it's looking like we'll land right around 40 uh catechisms total in the hardback collection which will be a 20 volume uh, collection so it's and i I see yours in the back there see i got i got some of mine stacked up in in here over my shoulder so um yes there's eight in print currently but uh but yes there's another another you have
1: the original black cover
0: there it is. Yes. So, and, and it's funny because some of that's a, uh, well, that's, you know, that's contraband now. I'm pretty sure yes. it's, it's a limited edition. Yeah. So the original, um, operation we, we had been, of course, the research side and, and kind of the manuscript work side had been, this has been, you know, 10, 10 plus years. Uh, but it wasn't until 2019 that, uh, his Excellency Bishop Schneider, who's Episcopal advisor for the whole project, he he kind of encouraged us to partner with a larger uh, publisher just so that uh, more folks would know about the project and have access to it. And we we kind of envisioned it as like a scholarly tool yeah, beginning that wouldn't have a whole lot of, of uh, lay, lay folks uh, interested in. But um, what Bishop was very encouraging in that, which I'm grateful for because he, he was absolutely right. I mean, the minute that we kind of went public with, uh, especially with a partnership through the Sophia Institute Press doing the kind of the fulfillment, the hardback binding. They did a great job, you know, with the gold foil and everything. And so so they kind of understood the vision a little more and um, we partnered with them so that they could take over all of the warehousing things while we focused on the research. And uh, and since that time, it's it's just been a huge uh, response. And I I am still just floored by kind of the the write-ins that we get, or, or feedback that we get on the project, folks, you know that they'll read a catechism from a hundred years, two hundred, three, four, five hundred years ago. Our oldest are going to be in the early twelve hundreds. Uh, it's in volume six, and so so spanning, you know, the better part of a millennium in in English catechisms, uh, and we're we're just taking the highlights. You know, we're taking the best from that's available in English from the thousands of catechisms that have been produced uh, in uh, in the last several centuries. And so when folks read these and they see this remarkable continuity of of doctrine across time, but also space. I mean, we have texts that are coming from, you know, in every every known language um, that, that we're kind of taking. Some of these are translations from, you know, the originals. And uh, it's it's amazing to just stack them up side by side, and that's really the the goal of the project is to demonstrate that continuity of faith uh, across time and space.
1: Here's what is some, has somebody said this to you? Why do I need to get twenty volumes of catechisms? Isn't one good enough? Why do I need uh, Bellarmine? And why do I need to read Tuberville? Why do I need Slam Sandler? Why do I need? Aquinas, if they all say the same thing, why do I need to study all this?
0: It's true. And I uh, I, I would be the first to say you don't need all of them. Uh, if if by need, you mean uh, to understand the basics of the faith and and be saved. You know, it's uh, the value of a project like this is, for one, as a study tool, as you mentioned, it there are certain aspects of the faith that are brought out by each of these authors that are totally unique to them. Uh, so one we're hoping to look at talking about today, you know, Chaloner. Uh, so English bishop, really a hero of the faith. And he has this fascinating uh, take on the mysteries of faith through the lens of uh, the liturgy. One of the one of the catechisms, there's actually three different catechisms that he wrote in this volume. Um, and so it, so that kind of perspective, you know, very, uh, very much unique to him in that time. And then Aquinas, you know, folks are familiar with, of course, Peter Canisius and Pius X. We have these major saints that uh, have have written catechisms, oftentimes more than one, you know, per author. So in terms of the study value, there's there's a that's really why we launched the project was being able to do this kind of compare, contrast in terms of how this perennial content, the actual dogma, the doctrine, uh, and then how it's how it's presented, you know, time to time. And uh, place to place. And that's what's really the, the value of a project like this is everybody finds their favorite, you know, folks that uh, I was talking to somebody the other day that says, yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, Frassinetti now, he's my favorite. You know, they've been getting every volume as it comes. And, and Sophia built it out as a three month, like a quarterly uh, subscription, which was a great idea. Wish I'd thought of it. <laughs> and, uh so, so every three months, there's just, you know, you, it's a $25 charge comes every quarter, and then you get a new volume of, of uh, classic catechisms. And somebody who is a subscriber pointed this out, they got the latest one volume eight, which is, uh, Italian catechisms, really two of the greatest, uh, Italian catechisms, Pope St. Pius X, which a lot of folks are still familiar with, uh, kind of one of the best brief catechisms really ever uh, composed, Pius X. The and then, um, and then his, his kind of his predecessor in many ways, uh, which is Venerable Uh Folks may be familiar with that name from his sister, who is a canonized saint. Um, he himself is a venerable and was called uh, <clears throat> kind of the curé of, of Italy uh, at his, in his time. He was a, a very holy, a very erudite uh, priest. Wrote a fantastic catechism himself. So anyway, so I was talking to somebody recently. They said, uh, you know, I've I've been trying to keep tabs on all the catechisms. You know, they're all so great, and, but I've decided, you know, Frasinetti, I think he's my favorite. <laughs> you know, so everybody, everybody kind of lands on their uh, their their go-to. You know, I, I I I still haven't revealed mine, but folks will ask what I recommend, and I'll do that. But I <laughs> yeah, I, I tend not to share the ones that I like the most. Uh, just because they there it's really not for everybody you know we we have one <clears throat> for instance there's one uh, catechism we will do in the 20 volume series it has to be done it's it's the french the great Abbe gallum the catechism of perseverance uh which is massive it's it's mm-hmm. it's just gigantic and it's it's one of many uh multi-volume catechisms that were produced uh especially in the last three centuries and um but we could only afford to, you know, do one of these in the hardback series, one of the multi-volume ones. So, uh, so we picked Gaum, who's who's kind of a lot of folks are familiar with him. Certainly in France, would be familiar with him. And uh, and he's he's really the milestone in terms of multi-volume catechisms. And so, uh, but then again, you know, you, you you can't come to just anybody and say, here, read this catechism. It's only, you know, <laughs> 400 pages times times three or or whatnot. Uh, so it really does. It depends on. What the uh, what the target audience is, you know, personal preference, and then the approach that each author takes, which is, which is why in the series, in the print series, I should say, uh, we also give kind of a lengthy preface uh,
1: mm-hmm. for
0: each of these, explaining, you know, what uh, what the context was for the works that are in this particular volume, because most of the volumes have more than one catechism in them, uh, and then talking through, you know, what's what's some of the focal areas that this author takes, or or what's a unique. Uh, kind of uh, mode of presentation that he gives to the truths of the faith here. So, hoping to kind of give folks uh, a, a sampling, you know, a way to to uh, uh, kind of view each of the texts as they come out. And then volume twenty is really a standalone golden key to the whole series. That's that's just an index. Volume twenty is is a standalone index which references you know the full the full gamut, the other nineteen volumes in the series. So it will really be a, a a very concise kind of catechism in itself it'll be a, a systematic index as well as an alphabetical index and it'll it'll uh, yeah reference the full series.
1: I'll give my answer as repetitio mater studiorum if they're just re- repeating the repetition is uh, the mother of all studies so if you get one even though it might say the same thing it's still getting hardwired in your head there's some catechisms for kids that are involved in this Uh, the historical facts or the uh, context of the, that you bring up in this, like the Bellerman one or the Sandler one. It was just those. That's the coolest part. I think of the whole project is who these people were, who, why were they writing it? Who is the audience? Where was it? And would you die if you had it in your possession? (laughs) Like, you know, things like that makes you think, wait a minute, I can have a catechism over there in the corner and show everybody about it. No one says a thing. you you have this one in your possession. They killed you. Mm.
0: Yes, it's so true. It, it's um, and I really, we, I wish we could do more in terms of the the narrative side of it. We mm. we do a fair piece, you know, for each of the volumes, but there's there's just more than you could ever tell, of course. In a in a um, in a preface, for sure, uh, even in one book. And so, and is one of those. I mean, so we're we're looking at uh, Bishop Challoner's Catechism is Volume Three. Uh, so he has three, three different catechisms. And, and he is one of these uh, about whom several books, of course, have been written. Um, and really, it's, it's a shame he's not more well-known, uh, especially English-speaking Catholics. Of course, in England, uh, there's a little more knowledge. It's just the UK generally. But um, he, he's just this incredible, really an Athanasius-like figure in his period. You, know, you find yourself in an England... There he is. Great. Somebody's. Yep. Um, right, he, he shows up uh, on the scene when England is, is really just kind of face down. English Catholicism has is, is, uh, gone through now multiple generations of uh, civil liberty suspensions and suppression. You have uh, still kind of the worst of the penal laws, uh, they're called, that are on the books at this time. And they're sporadically enforced. You know, it's not uh, it's not kind of uniform everywhere across the island. But um, but any there's there's any kind of unrest, you know, the Catholics are are kind of an easy uh, an, an easy dead horse to kick, as it were, for everybody else. You know, and so so you have the the way that the faith is maintained at this point is almost exclusively in uh, these these really well-to-do families. The recusant families, as they're called, they they, um, they are retaining the faith and oftentimes retaining uh, priests. So there, you you have a couple of the foreign embassies that are permitted sometimes <laughs> to to host uh, priests for saying holy mass there, but far and away the the most frequent uh, way that anybody would access uh, mass or the sacraments was through this kind of underground network of. Families that were in communication with each other, and then clergy that uh, that were also obviously in communication, and so it's a it's just a dismal time. By the time you hit uh, Bishop Chaloner's period, because there's just no end in sight. I mean, Queen Mary, there's this brief reprieve, you know, in the prior century, and um, and then it just seems like well, England is is lost to the face. By the by the time that uh, Chaloner gets there early 1700s. And his life spans almost the whole of that century, the 18th century. Uh, and so you're, you're seeing this massive sociocultural upheaval across Europe in that period, obviously, French Revolution and you know, everything else. Um, and in England, the, the, the church is just being rained on. You know, the monasteries and convents have been just suppressed you know, across, the, across the country. Uh, Catholics are underground, you know, they're, they're seeking to evade civil law just to teach even their own children you know, the truths of the faith. I mean, you have, you have laws on the books at that time for the discovery of a popish schoolmaster, you know, and, and, uh, and there were some very, very nice, uh, tidy fines available. Uh, not
1: only I, I saw the rewards that you posted. That was huge.
0: Yes. I mean, big, big money stuff, especially for uh, priests and bishops. So the idea that you would find a a bishop, I think it's in the preface of it. Oh yes. So we've got the clergy, which would sometimes be a hundred pounds sterling. Uh, I mean, a hundred pounds sterling is you know twenty grand or plus for per incident. You know, so so you know that uh, neighbors down the street are hosting uh, uh, Father George or. Uh, of Bishop Richards every every so often for mass and you're looking at that 20 grand thinking yeah you know maybe somebody might just get informed about this uh, and, and I could see a little extra income stream for this uh, this fiscal year you know the, these are just very real uh, very concrete dangers that the faithful mm-hmm. regularly encountered uh, at the time that Bishop Challoner comes on the scene so it is as you say the catechisms are they're, uh, they're dangerous, uh, they're dangerous propaganda, their contraband, um, in fact at Bellarmine's, you know, it was, so Bellarmine's Catechism, so volume two, uh, Box series, we have Bellarmine, and, um, at that time, you know, when that comes out, they actually created significant and distinct laws for the possession of what they just generally called a, a Bellarmine book, I mean, just mm-hmm. anything written by Bellarmine, he was such a known name, uh, by that, by that point in England that, uh, you know, he was, he was public enemy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, if you had a Bellerman book, you know, or, or any cat, any of these popish catechisms, um, yeah, this was, this was contraband and evidence to indict you in court.
1: Yeah. I remember that. I mean, Ryan will talk to you and we'll talk about the English reformation all the time. And I would love for him to incorporate Bellerman into that. Cause yeah, just that idea of it's not a big book. It's just a, a uh, couple you know it's almost like a penny catechism style in a sense and yet that was so influential that the people in england were ready to lock you up or kill you over that it's it's utterly amazing the time period i guess you could combine it to uh, compare it to maybe uh muslim lands i guess um uh, and the catholics there now
0: yes i i think so and uh you know we we hope to avoid the the pangs of censorship that were endured by our forebears, but I think I think we're already seeing that in the postmodern West, um, and I yeah I would expect that to continue apace. Really, the when uh, when the only when the only um, dogmas for which people can be publicly punished for uh, are are things like upholding natural law and you know, upholding the definitions of of man or woman or uh, or marriage or you know these kind of things. So we'll. Well, sh- I think we'll in short order see that kind of thing brought to bear on uh, texts as well. You know, we're already seeing the these kind of hate crime laws and these things come into play. So, I, it may take a, it. Certainly, will take a different form. But uh, I think we it would we would behoove us all to uh, be more aware of our Catholic history in that regard. That we we are not um, we are not new to the work of uh, proclaiming a message deemed. Unproclaimable by a regnant civil authority, so it is. There's some fantastic lessons in there for us historically, and and as you say, it makes the reading of these catechisms even more poignant uh, as as we look at it. I mean, bishop Challoner, in fact, he is, is amazing. This account as a as a bishop. So he, he, sorry, can I jump in and tell a little story? Yeah, uh, go for about it about him. So he's he's just this incredible uh, witness and testimony to how you don't know the good that you do, what it's, what it's ultimate kind of a fruit will be. You, you leave that to God because, uh, Bishop challenger is, is, a great example of that. He is, he is a teenager. Uh, his father passes away mm-hmm. and, uh, he's, it's just him and his, and his mother left <clears throat> when, uh, and, and Protestant for to mention that. So he's, he's one of the first, uh, well, that's a tangent anyways he he's raised Protestant his his father's a Presbyterian and um, when he dies his his father, his mother is kind of destitute you know looking looking for work uh, is just one of the worst times to be you know, deprived of of a husband just in terms of provision because England also just financially is is really suffering uh, at this point not just not just Catholics but uh, throughout and so so she's looking for work, and she's hired in as a household uh, staff, really, as a maid, we, we would kind of call it today, but they generally had more duties in that time, uh, and were often live in, you know, live in the premises. So she's hired as household staff by this uh, Catholic family, the Gage family, and uh, and even still, nobody really knows why. It's kind of this this uh, fluke thing, because Catholics never, uh, or at least almost never, hired known uh, Protestants into the household staff. Why? Because typically these Catholic families were the ones doing these, these illicit uh, uh, civil disobedience acts on a regular basis in their popish gatherings. <laughs> right. And, and so often they, they would even bring in staff just to give them just to give the staff and even volunteers at times access to mass and the sacraments. Yeah. Um, and so so it was like being on the inside track for uh for, for Catholics at that time and so so but they hire in this uh this widow and her her uh, her kind of teenage son uh the gauges and through that association they come into the Challengers, come into the circle of uh the, the stafford family and and uh, and the staffords have this amazing legacy themselves the viscount Viscount Richard Stafford, who's who's uh, two kind of two generations prior, um, is a martyr, uh, martyred for the faith. He's he's in there's these incredible old uh, engravings of him because he was you know viscount. I mean, he was he it wasn't nobility, but he was a he was a gentleman and uh, and highly regarded. But he's executed for the faith, uh, even at an at an older age. I think he was uh, maybe mid 60s or so. so this kind of venerable uh, old gentleman, who's killed for the faith in in the early years of the uh, of the persecutions, and so they keep his memory alive. This the this, this Stafford family, um, you know, portraits of him. They they uh, they're of course convinced of his his sanctity and having suffered for the faith. It's it's very evident um, that that's the only charges he was brought upon, and so. Uh, so they ask, they ask his intercession, you know, on a regular, they tell the stories of, you know, those who were there to see it, you know, even the, the grandchildren that are told the stories. And so, so here come the challengers into the, the uh, ambit of this Catholic family. And that's really where uh, Richard is, is taught the faith. He starts to kind of inquire um, what's, what's this whole uh, Catholic thing about. And, you know, we, we know that you, you don't have the the true faith. You have these kind of popish superstitions and whatnot, but it's, it's really kind of strange. And, you know, why, why this, why that, you know, these relics I mean, what's up with that, you know, so asking these questions because he's of course, regularly in the, they're um, exposed, you know, to these, these uh, realities. And so uh, it's, it's through that, that the, uh, the priest who's the the staff, uh, the staff chaplain of the of the household, Father Gother, who himself is this incredible uh, story behind him. He's he's a, a controversialist. He, he's writing, he's publishing secretly, you know, out of the home and things. And so, uh, but he he it ends up is the the family chaplain at this time. And Father Gother is just receives this this inspiration uh, with regard to young Richard, and kind of takes him under his wing, you know, is t- 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 teaching him the doctrines and says. Um, you, you know, you're, you're called to this, this is, this is your, this is your birthright. Um, and I'm going to ensure that there's a, a, a seminary fund available for you when you go to Doe, you know, Doe College, which is, so at that time, your, uh, your, your listeners may know Doe, or in England, they, Doe, they call it, um, as in the Doe rhymes Bible that many are familiar with that. Uh, term is, a uh, is one of the great English colleges, uh, tr- for training priests and then sending them back on what they call the English mission. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and Father Gother here at the, at the Stafford family is telling young challoner, you know, this is, this, I, I think, um, you're called to this. He, he ends up receiving him into the church there and then says, if you, uh, uh you know, if you, you discern that, uh, that, our Lord wants you to be a priest, I will, you know, I'll make all the arrangements that you can go to, go overseas, go to Dewey and, and come back a priest. And so, um, so he does. I mean, it, and so just this fan, fascinating, you know, lesson of a little change of family associations, you know, the, where the this Catholic family, they, they bring in, you know, a widow and her son, he ends up um, entering the church and ends up, Going off to do a college for training as a priest, and and then as he returns, it's this in, the incredible chapter opens of his his ministry, his mission uh, on the back on the island after uh, returning a priest.
1: Do we know why he wrote the catechisms? I'm trying. I was trying to think that. I mean, I read the uh, preface, and I don't remember, but it, it talks about the three volume. There's three texts in the book. Now uh, the first volume. Uh, the cool part about that is the abridgment is there's a prayer at the end uh, that was, as you say, the final chapter contains an act of love of neighbor that is rendered all the more moving by its having been recited by Catholics on not a few English scaffolds of the day. And again, just think about the time. You see the photos behind me of the English martyrs uh, at the uh, the Carthusians. Uh, the second text. Uh, perhaps leading credits to the old Catholic tru- uh, truism because of the heated persecution of the author. It's the mass that matters. And then if you read it, you would get into the, he gives a bunch of the prayers about I mean, like uh baptism and uh confession. And, and he just he lays out everything that's supposed to be going on in it. It's really incredible how he pulled this off and did it uh, because of the attack on the paganism of popery And, uh, the third, the third volume, uh, The Grounds of Catholic Doctrine, published in 1732, uh, said intended for poorly educated, faithful, or non-Catholic inquirers. Uh, so what was, was this? Do we know the motivation to start this uh, catechism series of his? Uh,
0: yes. He, he really landed in an England that was, uh, as we mentioned before, a, a persecuted church but also one that had growing resources in terms of print. Um, I, I would love to see somebody do a book as kind of a more uh, deep dive on really the, the history of print, just the print book uh, in England, especially in in kind of the, the Reformation period. Now, most pe- people will focus, of course, on the content, like what's, what's getting said, what's getting talked about, um, but uh, just, Ancillarily in the research, we come across a lot more of kind of the details of of what's happening. And at this point, you have uh, really more and more uh, presses available that is like the the physical engine for the production of a book. They're getting smaller. um, They're getting more lightweight. They're getting more transportable. you have the the wagon back press, they're called. So it was one that you could uh, you could basically hook up like a little trailer, you know, and, and just kind of drive it around, and um, you could park it at somebody's house on somebody's estate, let's say. And if you had sufficient reams of paper and maybe two or three people, you could you could crank out a couple books in in a in a few hours. You know, it was it was a, uh, and uh, and that was that was big time stuff back then. You know, yeah. so so. Um, so this technology is really is is kind of rising and then you have of course a, a tremendous need to to be met which is you're now by the time uh richard comes back to the continent um he's he's facing a a period where you've had enough dissemination of these these protestant errors for that time that uh very much like we run into today there's kind of this uh, Ah uh, proof texting that's that's beginning to happen now you know there's there's a folks are familiar enough with the uh, with with Protestantism, the various tenets of not just anglicanism it only is beginning to be called that uh, at this point but um but just the the various kind of ah uh, sects and uh, and so the the scriptural texts that they base a lot of these claims on uh, these these kind of false doctrines on they're they're becoming a little more. Uh, just like the the earworm thing. they're they're just a little more ingrained. and so so what what Challenger found was there's this huge dearth of uh, uh, not just catechisms, so folks that can learn their faith, the Catholics can learn their faith, but also with an apologetic kind of aspect. so they can answer these direct kind of challenges oftentimes made from uh, different chapter and verse uh, scriptural assertions. and so, so he, of course, this isn't new to him. But in England, there was a great need for more texts like this, and so, so he does. He writes multiple catechisms. And we have the three most significant are, are in volume three, as you say. The first is the abridgment. Um, this is very much like the, the Dewey Catechism that folks are familiar with. That's also in uh, volume two of our series. But that's that's a very concise. It's it's generally not. Um, what at what at that time they called controversialist, uh, mm-hmm. what we would call just apologetic. It, it's generally not that kind of approach. It's it's really a more Baltimore style, kind of just the facts. Um, and then uh, and then he he saw again this need to get a little more a little more of an exploded view, and that was where we got um, especially the grounds of the Catholic doctrine. That's that's the third uh, in this volume, which is almost entirely a uh it, it can be read you know it's a question and answer format i'll just read one so uh let's see it's it's uh they're all so so uh so concise but okay so question 423 it talks about uh oh sorry i'll just pull uh let's see Forty fifty six. uh 55 are we not commanded to receive the sacrament in remembrance of Christ sign about uh, of course the the Eucharist yes we are st. Paul lets us know what it is that is to be the object of our remembrance when he tells us you do show or show forth the Lord's death till it comes this remembrance is not opposite to the real presence of Christ's body and blood on the contrary what better remembrance can there be than to receive under the sacramental veils the same body and blood in which he suffered for us that that is to say you know, he's he's setting up. Almost every Q and A is Protestants say this, mm-hmm. you know, we believe this, <laughs> so they're uh, they're all structured like that, um, which is uh, yeah, it's just fantastic. You know, so section on on saints and angels. Do you have any reason to think the saints and angels have any knowledge of our addresses or petitions that are made to them? Yes, we have. First, and then goes through you know two pages of so here's here's why the angels uh, hear and respond to our prayers. You know, all from Scripture, from reason. Uh, from, from tradition. So it's, it's very, uh, it's an apologetic text, but Mm -hmm. it is, it is not designed to be uh, strictly kind of meeting arguments, but also giving a little more uh, context to a Catholic who might be kind of set on their heels by Mm -hmm. some of this proof texting really that's going on at that point.
1: No, yeah, it's a solid, as you said, apologetic, I was thinking the same thing. It's a solid little education, apologetic, resource and and that's what basically what the whole book is is a catechism with apologetics with basic teaching which you can go with we mentioned families I, i mentioned kids you can go with the first 38 pages which the abridgment of christian doctrine a child could go through that easily uh and then go through the grounds of catholic doctrine which is what we were just talking about the apologetic part and that gets you a little you know dust off the uh yeah, maybe you have a, a Protestant in your family that's as, asking these same questions. I mean, it the the chapters are the church, the scripture, uh, profession of faith, the church, scripture and tradition, sacraments, real presence, communion, one kind, the mass, purgatory, veneration and invocation of saints, images, indulgences, supremacy of Saint Peter and his successors, and he brings up a conclusion, and then for the entire family to bring up the Catholic and uh, Christian, the Catholic Christian instructed. Of 1737, that's got some meat in it. <laughs> it does, and I, the
0: Catholic Christian Instructed, is is uh, will will ring so familiarly to readers uh, who will attend the traditional rites, uh, the Roman rite, because it's it is copy copy-paste. I mean, there are large sections in Catholic Christian Instructed uh that reference and kind of expound upon the prayers of the holy mass and the rites of of some of the different sacraments this is really the most kind of unique of his of of bishop challoner's texts is that he he also saw a need for a greater catechesis on the liturgy itself Mm -hmm. so you can imagine you know it's it's difficult even to find its access uh traditional liturgy at this time and then those that do is it can often be sporadic um, and how how well formed are they? On what what do these things mean? You know, tell me the meaning of these things. What is the mystical signification of what the priest is doing? Uh, what are what are good ways for me to pray during Holy Mass? And you can read this like a like a, a Latin Mass 101. I mean, yeah. parts of his Catechism. You know, so I so I love like on uh, we got page 146. We so has a whole section on in what manner ought the people to be employed during the Mass. The answer in such prayers and devotions as are suitable for that holy sacrifice. And then he goes he goes through some of the different ways. What kind of prayers and devotions would you esteem to be the best adapted to the different parts of the mass? Yeah. And he goes through all the different parts of the mass and talks through. Well, at the beginning of mass, we might apply the soul to God, but begging divine grace for worthily and profitably assisting at the sacrifice. At the confidere, and then up to the curia. You know, so he goes through each part of the mass, and uh, and and of course those who attend the traditional mass today is like looking in a mirror because the mm-hmm. reality is 1700s, the missile at, used in the 1700s uh, with the exception of, of some of the propers, um, of course, the calendar of saints and things. I mean, it, it really is copy paste even more so because uh, those that have a Latin English missiles today um, will, will recognize, I mean, identical translations even of some of the mass propers mm-hmm. in this catechism from you know, the mid 1700s, the early 1700s. So it's a fantastic way of also kind of looking at the faith, looking at the truths of the faith, but through the lens of classical liturgy, the the prayer of the church, which, of course, brings us back to that old adage, the lex orandi, lex credendi, you know, as the church believes, so she prays, as she prays, so she believes. And this is a, a really a clear testimony to that.
1: Yeah, he brings up outside the mass uh, uh, every sacrament. Literally goes through every sacrament and the ritual uh, that it's that's part of it. The churching of women, uh, fasts, canonical hours, festivals of the church, invocation, of angels, saints, devotion to Blessed Virgin Mary, use of venerate, use and of veneration of relics, use of pictures and images, exorcisms, and benedictions. So it very liturgical work, indulgences and jubilees. Uh, saying the Mass in Latin, page one
0: fifty. Um, well, we should look at that because why why say the Mass in Latin? I mean, you can't, you folks can't even understand that stuff. <laughs> Get that? Those old work I mean, have, you know, the charges have not changed at all. This is what's so fascinating. Right. You know what I mean? These uh, apologetic works and uh, controversialist works and old catechisms. It's like, wow, I, I'm pretty sure I heard this just yesterday. You know, these, <laughs> these same kind of assertions. But let's just, I just want to read that one because it's so good. So, so this is question 200 in Catholic Christian Instructed. Why does the church celebrate mass in Latin rather than in the vulgar language? That is to say the vernacular. Uh-huh. Does it answer first, <clears throat> because it is her ancient language used in all her sacred offices, even from the apostles' days throughout all the Western parts of the world, and therefore the church, which hates novelty, desires to celebrate her liturgy in the same language as the saints have done for so many ages. Second, for greater uniformity in public worship, so that the Christian in whatsoever country he chances to be may still find the liturgy performed in the same manner and the same language to which he's accustomed at home. Something about unity in there. And the Latin is certainly, of all languages, the most proper for this, as being the most universally studied and known. That's an interesting historical side point. Third, to avoid the changes to which all vulgar languages, as we find by experience, are daily exposed, for the church is unwilling to be chopping and changing her liturgy at every turn of language.
1: Hmm. Fascinating. Yep. Yeah. Then when I first read that, I immediately thought of Dr. Wood's book, uh, Sacred Then, Sacred Now. And he brings up that story of an uh this is an Italian World War I, One one who's either Italian or US, and he's going when well, he's in Italy, maybe maybe it's US, and he's going to Italy and he goes mass, and it's the same mass. He goes to France, it goes the same thing. He goes to Germany, it's the same. He goes, to Each country, it's the same thing. Then he goes now. He might go out for a smoke break during the sermon because it's an Italian or French, but he goes back in and everyone's united. It's the same thing. You can if you go to a traditional mass, you notice that you. Uh, I remember back in Denver, I would say there's a there was a family from Africa in front, there was a family from uh, Mexico to my left, a Chinese family to my right. All the nations were represented in one place under one language instead of being separated in different groups and never talk to each other.
0: Yes, I I uh, found fascinating the fact that. Uh, that exact issue, you know, this this need for endless vernacular, or as Chaloner puts it, vulgar uh, language translations, uh, generates no end of of uh, of course doctrinal issues. Mm-hmm. If if we are we talking about the same terms, but also just as you say, this this kind of cultural cohesion uh, around the same thing, the same thing, and uh, and Chaloner mentions that from a contemporary of his, a, that is to say, a Protestant contemporary of his. Who's uh, Dr. Halen? So he has this, he has this excerpt that I I have to uh, read. So he says, uh, "As for Protestants, we learn from Dr. Halen's history of the Reformation." So again, this is
1: mm-hmm.
0: this is a Protestant writing about uh, the emergence of uh, of the uh, of revolts, the Protestant revolt. Dr. Halen writes, "Quote: The Irish Parliament passed an act for uniformity of common prayer. That is to say, uh, the, uh, the the new religion." in its liturgical expression. They gave permission for saying the same in Latin, where the minister did not have the knowledge of the English tongue, but for translating it into Irish, the Gaelic, there was no care taken. The people therefore required by that statute under severe penalties to frequent their churches and be present at the reading of the English liturgy, which they understood no more than they do the mass. The Latin. <laughs> by which means, this continues Dr. Haley, by which means we have furnished the papists with an excellent argument against ourselves for having the divine service celebrated in such a language as the people do not understand, right? Cause, so the whole, uh, the whole issue at the time is like, well, now we, we the vernacular is the only thing that really is sensible, except everywhere else in the world where our vernacular isn't understood, right? <laughs> uh, yes, I do. Uh, you know, just a few Sundays ago, you mentioned that your your experience. I had something very similar. We, I was standing it was standing room only one of these masses I'm in the back. And, uh, and I was next to a, a mother. It was from Africa. And then, um, and then another, a couple that came out and afterwards, and she spoke barely any English. They were a uh, Hispanic couple. Um, I presume Mexico or, or Honduras maybe. And, uh, <clears throat> and he spoke a little more English and she was looked so excited. It was her first. She she had, uh, it's her first uh, traditional mass that she'd attended that day and um, and she's trying to kind of say you know in Spanish and some broken English her experience and the and the the uh, gentleman's kind of trying to half translate then she kept saying this word foundation which I, th- I thought was so profound you know she's she's saying like it seems like this foundation uh-huh. you know she, she was trying to kind of get at that that uh, that really unrepeatable sense of, of uh, the antiquity, you know, of the rite itself, because it is, as um, uh, the old uh, Father Fortescue would say, you know, it's it is the most <clears throat> venerable rite in, in Christendom. So it, it does, it speaks for itself, but I think, I think readers of Chaloner will find themselves in immediate good company when they get into his sections on the Mass, on the other sacraments, on explaining some of the ritual uh, significance for uh, communicating the truths of the faith, because because it is folks folks kind of intuit this, but uh, the the old rites are just shot through with with dogma. I mean, they they just can't help themselves. You know, it's it's like uh, I can't remember who first said this. I saw this somewhere. They said um, uh, that uh, the the old uh, liturgies are dogma in motion, mm-hmm. or like dogma set to music, dogma set to poetry, and it, it very much is that way. Um, not just in the texts of the, the actual prayers, the orations and so on, um, but the gestures. I mean, the, the whole, uh, the, the whole uh, tapestry, really, of the traditional rites communicates truths of faith in a, in a very profound way. I mean, a way that, um, in fact, Chaloner himself, so he, I, mean, I share another story about him. He, when he comes into the country, you know, he's, he's committed to, in his spare time, uh, writing these these new texts for use uh, kind of on the ground, you know, in the trenches in uh, now Protestantized England. <clears throat> and um, but he's also receiving people into the church, as folks forget. I mean, there are there were converts in the midst of this incredible oppression of the mm-hmm. church, uh, just like there are anywhere that the church is oppressed. Folks are you know, blood of the martyrs, that whole thing um, is the seed of the church. and so, so he is also receiving people into the church, and there's one account of I, I believe it, it's uh, the account itself. I believe it was given about an, uh, an anonymous bishop, but it's pretty likely it was Chaloner, where uh, this couple had been basically instructed in the truths of the faith through one of these catechisms discreeted kind of in their pocket in the public square as they walk by, you know, here's what you need to know, and, uh, you know, put the the little abridgment in the pocket and they're, they're kind of studying their way into the faith when there's, there's hardly anybody there to hold their hand and, and, uh, bring them along, you know, teach them all this, all the teachers are in hiding and things. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so they kind of study their way in, they, they realize even you know, the truths of Catholicism, they want to convert, um, they, you know, word somehow gets through the grapevine to a bishop somewhere. So there's somewhere there's a Catholic bishop, you know, over here. We're not entirely sure where, but, uh, but he knows that, that we want, we want in, you know, and, uh, they've kind of vetted us for a while, make sure we're not spies and everything else. And, uh, and so then the one day they're told, uh, Hey, come to, there's a, a pub, uh, kind of downtown, I believe it's London. And, um, uh, kind of connected to it. There's a, there's a house, you know, a lot of times they would have the the public house would be kind of a a bar and then also a a hotel, some, some kind of a hostel type arrangements where where folks could sleep over. We have, there's some upper rooms above there. And so come to the attic room at such and such a day, you know, such and such time and, uh, and say this word to the first person at the door, you know? And so they come in and they give the password to somebody who's looking a little, a little cross-eyed at them. And, uh, okay you know so they go up the stairs and they come to the second person and you know who are you oh well we're mr and mrs we're here to to uh to see the bishop and oh okay yeah you know so you come in there and there's this then out from another side door shuffles this this older gentleman uh kind of street clothes and uh and some people are, are trickling in and kind of taking seats and they realize as he goes to the back of the room and pulls hauls out this old chest and opens it and he's taking out vestments, you know, that have been hidden there and, uh, and lighting candles. And they say, Oh, wow, we're here. It's a man. It's a pontifical man. They, they go to their first, <laughs> their first ever mass. And it's a pontifical mass, uh, presumably Bishop Challoner, And, uh, and he receives them into the church, you know, they, they, uh, afterwards they get the kind of a final catechesis and scrutiny and they're, uh, you know they abjure their errors. They're received into the church, they are confirmed. I mean, so it's just amazing these accounts of uh, of uh, Bishop Challoner, just the heroism that he displayed in uh, carrying on the faith for decades. I mean, he again he lives he lives most of uh, the 18th century, and just sees uh, so much uh, good work is 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 gained at that time. Some of the the Catholic emancipation, those acts. Uh, kind of their first really discussed towards the end of his life. And, um, and he's doing more things kind of kind of pushing the envelope in terms of civil law, where he's starting to do more gatherings of priests and even, even um, ensuring that people know, in, in terms of the civil court, that they know that it's happening, you know, and so things like this, where he's, he's uh, setting up orphanages, he's, he's working to promote um, funding for, uh, for different uh, Catholic apostolates and things just pushing it, just pushing it, pushing it his whole life really. Um, and so it's it's not until after his death that some of these official kind of the civil acts for uh, for relief some measures of relief on on Catholics uh, begin to come about. and um, so he yeah in the midst of that you know he's he's writing these these, uh, these, these confessional texts you know writing these catechisms just to give, uh, as well as devotional works. He also writes uh, several devotional works just to to really build up the faith of uh, Catholics at the time, but then also to give reasons for the hope that is in us, as uh, St. Peter says, you know, that folks are still converting or coming into the church, even at this time, uh, in many ways, thanks to heroes like Bishop Challenger.
1: So there's another example of not all catechisms are the same, too. I mean, You have three different ones that this one man wrote and one's an apologetic one. That's different from the others, from the other series. This one has a lot in the mass, which is, I've read the other, nothing like that in the other ones. So go ahead and get the, go ahead and get the series. Like I said, it's good for the education of your kids. Let's give them something to read for yourself, get you jacked on the situation. Cause again, I love seeing the historical part of this, hearing the stories about who wrote these things. And then reading them because it puts a mind on man, this is what these guys were dealing with at those times. Instead of just saying, Oh, well, you know, he'll hum, here's the Baltimore Catechism, go read it. This gives like another level to it. Um, I don't know if that, that, that does that to you, uh, but uh that that's how I feel about them.
0: It absolutely does. I I um, in fact, there's a certain degree, I think, of reverence uh owed to many of these texts for the reasons that you say. Um, and we, we hit that note uh, pretty strongly with volume one uh, in the series because it, it really is written uh, by a martyr for martyrs. I mean, that's some of the early Father Vos uh, in volume one. And um, and his catechism, this popish catechism in English that he composes, which t- too many are, are unfamiliar with now, but um, it was part of the body of evidence brought against him uh, that, that saw him die he died he died in prison um, for for uh, in many ways the writing of this exact catechism and there's not a few others that are that are like that as well so yes it does it gives a, a certain kind of uh, gravity to um, learning the truths of our faith, knowing the truths of our faith, being able to hand them on and recognizing that they have a kind of a, a degree of such uh, preciousness that they they really merited the uh, the ultimate sacrifice in a lot of these authors that they gave everything they had um, everything they were for the, for the continuation of this faith in the different places they were, different times they lived. And, uh, and Bishop Challoner is, is one, I mean, you can't, can't, uh, can't end without mentioning his earthly end because he dies uh, in the aftermath of the worst rioting in the history of, uh, of England. And so London sees this massive mob basically uh, escape 1781 uh and they, and they called it king mob because it was well there was just a lot of political instability at the time and uh, things kind of led, led to certain actions that's never
1: happened before i don't know what you're talking uh, about <laughs> and, and
0: it just resulted in complete mob rule in the city of london um and you're talking about you know the the major industrial and civil center of of this island nation, um, so total mob rule, you know, opening of prisons and just just, uh, you know, I mean, it was like, um, L.A. Yeah, it was just it was just madness. And so, uh, for whatever reason, there was this consistent and uh, and very intentional seeming targeting of Catholic homes and Catholic businesses. Uh, and many of them in the downtown area almost like golly they had been flagged beforehand but anyways um the one of the targets was a bishop that they knew was hiding out somewhere uh downtown london they had the block they had the city block figured out and they were going house to house looking for bishop challenger at that point is in his 80s you know he's, he's he's an old man and um he doesn't want to leave, and they're the those that are keeping him, the recusant family hiding him, are pleading with him. You know, Bishop, this 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 will be the end. Like we can't we can't protect you. Uh, we we don't we don't have a, a private army. You know these kind of things. Um, and he finally is prevailed upon to leave just hours before uh, the the mob kind of makes it there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and I mean, they're dragging people out in the streets and, you know, beating and just, I mean, it's just awful. And so, so Bishop Chaloner escapes through a, kind of a narrow um, uh, architectural gap and uh, he makes it to a country house, you know, another uh, close, close friends. Um, they put him up and it's just, it's just several weeks later that uh, he dies apparently of a stroke. It was just, it was just such a massive, um, because it, because it persisted for uh Weeks. I mean, and the damage, of course, was was catastrophic. You know, just ruined um, several families and uh, and businesses and things like that. But um, <clears throat> but Bishop Challoner ends his days in uh, in the home of a friend. You know, presumably a stroke or a heart attack. And uh, and his last kind of acts are to point to this this breast pocket that he had uh, just a couple of of um, of dollars. You know, a couple of pounds uh, notes in for the poor. And, you know, he, he always had a great love uh, for those suffering poverty, especially those that were kind of uh, all of a sudden suffering poverty as a result of things like this giant uh, riot in London, where these Catholic families were just regularly, they would be uh, the the targets of of this kind of mass violence. And so he's, as he's kind of falling from the table, they were at dinner, it seems. And, uh, and he's kind of gesturing to his pocket, like this is for the poor, you know, and that's how he dies. I mean, you have this hero bishop who, uh, who worked for the better part of a century, really, uh, to uphold the faith in England, to, to pass it on. And, uh, and his, <clears throat> one of his, um, he has the uh, Think Well on it is, is one of them, and uh, the Garden of the Soul is another, that some of these are still in print, little devotional works to help kind of uh, also give subjects for meditation the faithful because he, he always had a focus on <clears throat> we have to know our faith we have to be able to uh, communicate it to those that we are responsible for you know, especially parents to children uh, but also we have to know christ in in really an intimate way uh, in our prayer we, we have to be we have to be citizens of the next world uh first you know, we have to have this this profound life of prayer even in the midst of these these kind of dreadful Social circumstances, because it's the only thing uh, that matters. For one, it's it's the uh, it's the, the better part, as our Lord uh, told uh, Saint Mary. But but also that it's the it's the only way to kind of bring ourselves as a as as church, really, as a, the men and women of the church. It's the only way to, to kind of navigate these waters, you know, bring ourselves through this period, which is really uh, he was proven right in that over the years.
1: I was just thinking of Garaget writing about Dominic and Francis getting the establishment of the meditation nuns first and then activity afterwards. And Well, that's crazy talk, man. We need thousands of programs, death by programs.
0: Death by programs. <laughs> yes, death by programs. I, you know, that's, that's part of what uh, is a constant kind of a, a question mark to, uh, to all, all ardent believers in programs is, is what to make of church history. You know, when when you have this this uh, this really remarkable kind of dearth of programs. In fact, you you know anything but programs. You have this this mass. I mean, the time of, of Bishop Chaloner in England is just a total. You know, it's like the Wild West out there for Catholics, and uh, and yet you have these incredibly robust uh, centers of faith and doctrine. I mean. These these martyrs, these heroic accounts, men who would go off and be priests knowing, knowing that that was it for them. You know, if they came back and were caught, I mean, that was just that was the end of the line. And yet they saw it. So worth. so the transcendent value of the faith was so evident to them, even in these periods where you couldn't you couldn't go see when the mass times were. You couldn't walk down the street and go to go to such and such a parish um, that was a parish, maybe two generations prior, three generations prior. Uh, but now there's a different religion being enacted in that church. You know and so where do they go? Where, who do they who do they find? It's
1: worth of the gun.
0: Yes, yes. I mean it's uh, yeah, it, it's it's a very powerful uh, period in church history English Catholics. And, and Chaloner is one of the kind of the, the hinge you might say, from between the early uh, kind of the, the Henry and the Elizabethan persecution period. And then into kind of the what they generally call like the the restoration period, um, where you have these civil acts for the uh, emancipation of, of Catholics under the penal laws uh, begins to happen after Challoner's death. So he's he's kind of a um, uh, yeah he's a good hinge between those periods, and um, he I, I have one other little side note about him that I I think is really inspiring. He was very close friends with another Bishop, George Hay, who is actually is, is one of my favorite catechisms. He, we, we won't reprint his, but uh, it's, it's fantastic. So he's a, he's a Scotsman, you know, good, good Scottish uh, Bishop and, um, and and challenger. Yeah. Right. And, And without getting into their, how they met each other, which is this fascinating account anyways. Um, they become very fast, uh, friends and, uh, even more so when they're both kind of elevated to the, the bishopric and they make a pact them, just the two men that, uh, they will say mass for each other. Uh, I think it's think it's three times a week, um, that they would say a private mass for the other one every, every week until they died until, you know, one or the other died. And, uh, and And Challoner dies first, and hey is is faithful to his little problem. They don't even find out you know that this was that this was a, a privately made pact between these just erudite and solid courageous bishops um until after Chaloner's dead, and Hay kind of huh. you know, admits that oh, this is the, that mass that I say every week and until he's unable to say mass anymore. Bishop does it for years and years after challenger's death. And so it's just, so getting you know, another window into the kind of character of, of, a bishop, you know, a Catholic bishop who is convinced of the truth of the faith he professes Mm -hmm. to the extent of, you know, offering uh, really his, his life in it's, in its service and its defense uh, and takes it so seriously as to make this kind of, this kind of blood pact, you know, with another bishop, uh, both of whom say, look, we know our lives are on the line anytime there's a nice hefty reward out for our, our uh, heads. And yet um, we're so committed to this and, and we know that we need grace. And so, you know, I'll be there to, to uh, make meritorious acts for you. and I'm going to say mass for you that you have the grace. Well, I'll say mass for you that you have the grace, you know, do the thing. That's just, that's powerful stuff.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's not just words, it's actions. Yes. Um, I know you're a man of many hats. Anything you want to plug?
0: Uh, boy, well, other than uh, other than this project, uh, uh, well, of course the Benedictus we talked about that that's that's still that's still going strong. It's a fantastic resource. That's the the kind of monthly uh, companion text for just living a Catholic life. It has you know propers for the daily mass, but it also we pull from uh, the hours of lauds and vespers from the traditional breviary uh, for each day. We've got a meditation in there for each day, all from uh, classical, vetted, dead, uh, reliable authors, um, as well as just all kinds of special sections in there for uh, living the Catholic faith in the home. You know, ways to grow in prayer, ways to uh, more effectively catechize, notes about the different major feasts in a month, all of this stuff. It's if anybody's familiar with the Magnificat resource, it's something similar. Uh, this is this is patterned on a, on a similar kind of frame, uh, but obviously it's keyed to. Uh, the Roman Rite, the um, the Latin Mass, the Latin breviary, etc. So this is classical devotional content to build a traditional Catholic life around. So it's it's daily content. It comes out once a month. Um, we do the big art and culture and poetry, just all of that. Uh, it's 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 excellent. I wish I wish uh, it had been around longer. So I have, I have the good fortune of of uh, being a, a major uh, force behind this as well. And it's, um, we, yeah, we, we continue to see we're past 10,000 subscribers. Now it's, it's not even, well, you know, just this month, this month is year one. So we just finished the first year of a print publication, uh, with, with over 10,000 subscribers and, and adding. Um, so it is, it's, a uh, that's, it's just a fantastic resource. And
1: that's pretty solid. I appreciate that, yeah, and and of
0: course Benedictus books. So there, this is uh, it's its own imprint as well. Benedictus uh, books. So lots of awesome reprints there. I'm not supposed to tell you about one of them, uh, uh, but I will anyway, since it just came out, and that's Prumer, the centenary edition of the great, uh, the estimable, the widely renowned uh, Dominic Prumer's Handbook of Moral Theology. This is. This is a one-stop shop, must-have reference text. Um, and most uh, anybody, you know, pre-seminarians will all already be familiar with this. But uh, mm-hmm. but lay folks, if you don't have a reference work on moral theology, the the do's and do-nots, this is this should be required reading. Really, anybody's shelf. This is the lodestar for classical moral theology. Um, it is it is stellar. So we. We pulled out all the stops on this as a centenary edition um, reprint, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's over the top. We blew up all the scholarly apparatus. We rectified all of the citation errors because all of the old, um, even the old uh, printings of it had had errors. So we we dug deep on it. We we built out the index, you know, so it uses even contemporary terms, but then brings you the right citation. It's it's stellar. Um, and of course, Father Ripperger, many of, of uh, your listeners would be familiar with. Never heard of him. Father uh, <laughs> Father Ripperger is a big fan of Prumer, so we, we had him do the foreword for this because um, he's of course very familiar. All the all the fraternity priests and everybody are trained with with Prumer. I mean, he's just he's the name in moral theology.
1: Look uh, it up in Prumer.
0: Yeah, look it up in Prumer. That's that's the
1: that's the. Case. I mean, does T-shirts be like that? It would be. <laughs> for all all 10
0: people who would understand the reference (laughs)
1: Aaron appreciate your time man that was great Uh, I'll have all the links in the show notes below Uh, yeah definitely check out the handbook of moral theology maybe get one for your seminarian or priest as well if they don't know it go ahead and buy it for them as a gift I know it's September but you can think of Christmas as Christmas gifts to your local priest and uh, maybe the seminary as well uh, but yeah, the traddy box, Benedictus, all that will be underneath in the show notes. Go check out the websites. And yeah, Aaron, thanks for your time, man. Thank you, Steve, so much. Blessings to you, sir.